The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, we'll get started here. We're gonna, so we'll keep this pretty laid back. And I, um, if you decide you want to leave in the middle of it, we'll, we'll make sure it gets, it's going to be recorded and we'll make it available to you. And there's nothing new here that we haven't um, taught on before. I definitely want to leave time for questions and answer. Um, it's such a critical subject. And there's so many different components that you might bring to the table, you know, like blended family, adopted kids, foster kids. Um, you're getting, you're late to the game wanting to get this right. You know, you've kind of created patterns that are destructive and now how do we correct that? So, or you're, you don't even have a kid yet. You know, you're like, I want to get this right the first time through. Might be in that boat. Uh, I'm sure there's somebody here who's already out of, the child rearing phase and uh so i don't know we'll see we'll see where it goes so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk and lecture kind of i guess teach but then it's at any point i'm, I'm gonna do i'm gonna pause a lot and give you opportunity for dialogue and i don't care how long this goes y'all seriously i'll stay um as long as as long as anybody wants to stay and uh i did go home and find out i've got a nasty leak and there's water dumping all over the family room so I had to go home and get my iPad. So that was that was not the least bit distracting. <laughs> That's when you put your your teenagers to work. All right, I got a job to do. I got to leave. So it's in good hands. <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> We'd all be better off if they ran the world, right? All right, let's let's start from Proverbs 22. Is what I want to do. We'll start in Proverbs 22. Very familiar passage. Very familiar verse. And uh, so I'll just, I'll read this one verse and we'll just kind of work through some principles from the verse. Again, there'll be lots of opportunity for, for discussion, Q&A. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 is where we'll be. All right, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, please give us... Uh, your favor, your blessing, we ask for wisdom during our time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And if we were going to run a New Testament counterpart to that, or like a parallel, I think Ephesians 6, 4 would be where we would go. And that verse says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, uh, and also very practical. So one thing that might happen this, this afternoon is uh, maybe, you, uh, maybe you'll get some answers for your own life that go back to your childhood or your, your raising, you know, some, some things that you look back, maybe there's some wounds, there's some confusion, some ideas you project onto God about who God is. It's 
that, that are directly connected to and attached to your childhood and the experiences you had. Maybe your dad abandoned you. Maybe your dad was there, but he was verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. Maybe you endured sexual abuse. One of the most destructive things that we see here with young people would be uh, someone is abused, dad finds out about it and doesn't then handle it appropriately. I don't mean, you know, he gets his buddies and their deer rifles and they go on a bounty hunt. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what is the follow-up? Is there good counseling? Is there good, uh, is there good family counseling, individual counseling? Are we helping this kid walk through this and heal properly? A lot of times we deal with kids where there's no closure to that kid and that trauma that they've experienced. So a lot of people take their childhood trauma and then they drag it into marriage and subsequently drag it into their own child rearing. So maybe you think, I don't really have kids that are, this is not going to apply to me, but maybe you're in that category. And if you've got trauma from your childhood, you're, that is going to get projected onto your child rearing. And uh, so I think that's very important. Now, the text says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. So uh, let, me, let me give quick my kind of where I am in life. Married 20, going on 26 years. Um, first kids out of the house, married, head of the mission field. I mentioned Moses, our six-year-old that we adopted. Some of you know him. Tons of uh, things that come along with fostering and adopting. We have two children that we've adopted. One of the things that I've learned, and if you're fostering and, adop- and or adopting, one of the things you learn is you create this nice little package with your biological kids, and then when you bring those new children into your family, um, you things have to change. You've got to get real flexible and pliable with, with certain things in terms of application. The principles don't change, but you've got to change a lot of things, man, because that kid is bringing a lot into the relationship that, that you're not responsible for. And so you can't say, I'm going to treat this kid the same way I treated my first two kids who are biological. This kid is different completely, like a completely different situation and that's not really a a big talking point but it's something we can certainly talk about so the way i'm so for me uh in my my, where i am in life 20 25 plus years of marriage uh five kids but really different places in life with those kids crazy different so i was looking at the chart and i'm literally like everything including aging parents like i mean i got i buried my dad i've got a six-year-old and i'm and I've got grown kids, okay, so I've got a son-in-law. So it's like, whoa, I'm looking at that going, I don't even know where. I, my chart, my little chart would be just like loops and pointing this way and that way. I'd be like, yeah, so, um, so kind of all over the scale. So I feel like, but I feel like where that's good is it brings a lot to the table for a discussion like this because we're going to have people in different places in life. Um, so that's where we're at. Um, train up a child. The word train is a really important word because the word train is taken from an old ancient word that has to do with shaping and bending. Okay, so uh, one, one application would be like shaping a tree limb to make a bow out of it. There was a process. If you go back to, if you go back to like the Bronze Age, there was a process for making a bow. They didn't just cut a limb, bend it, and tie some nylon string they bought at Lowe's, you know, to, and making it. Me and my, I remember my brother made it bows and arrows out of sticks and string. They had, to, they had to create that weapon system that involved a lot in terms of what type of wood they used, what type of bow they were making, a short one, a long one. And so they would study 
types of trees, the way the trees bent. If you've ever, if you've ever failed trees, you, some of you guys maybe, um, you've got to study where that tree's leaning before you make that cut. I remember I was 21 years old, 21, 22, newlywed, was working at my first full-time job at a camp. I was in charge of grounds and maintenance. We need to take down a huge tree. It's leaning this way. I'm like, this is going to be easy. And it bucked and went the other way and took out side of a roof. Our whole volleyball court tore out about $2,000 worth of fence, knocked out some picnic tables, an 80-foot tall tree, destroyed a truck. Like, and I remember just kind of standing there and going, I mean, I've been on the job like a month. And I'm holding the chainsaw. And I was like, it wasn't supposed to do that. I really thought it was going to fall that way. Um, you know, but it went that way. And so like studying, understanding the bent or the way something's bent. And that's, that's the idea of training. So training has to do with studying intently into this child's heart and mind. That is your job as a parent. It is not that child's job to adapt to your parenting methods. It is your job as a parent to figure out not to adapt to that child and, and be at their whim, but to figure out the way they're bent and to know that everything doesn't work the same for every kid. And so I've got to fix, so train up a child has to do with studying with intention and intent, that heart, that, the heart of that child, the mind of that ch child. So, so that's the idea of training. Now, there's different phases in life of training. Hey, Chris, let's get some fans going. All the men in here, everyone with testosterone in their bodies is dying right now, literally. I'm going to go to a t-shirt, okay? I hope that's not inappropriate. Um, so train up a child uh, in the way he should go. Now, uh, secular sociologists and psychologists will tell us that in the, in the training up of a child, there are three different phases of child rearing. The first phase is the cop phase, cop, police. I don't know if we got any police officers in the room, but the cop phase is where you are the law enforcer. Okay, that, that looks different a lot of times from kid to kid. You know what I'm talking about? You've got one kid that's, you know, the fight or flight thing. You've got one kid that's fight, one kid that's flight. One kid that moves away from conflict, one kid that runs headlong into conflict. And you discipline those kids in a different manner. You're not being inconsistent to discipline them differently. The principles have to be consistent. The principle is I've got to bring this child's will into submission. I've got to help them understand their need for the gospel. I've got to see them come to saving faith in Jesus. But I'm not going to discipline every kid the exact same way. I remember when, uh, when we got our two adopted kids home, I thought spanking had always worked really good. And all of a sudden, little will tell you, spanking Moses, we, she goes exactly the opposite direction. This, she can't do it. doesn't work. It doesn't, it, all it does is rev up his fight instinct. Doesn't matter. And so there's a point where you're not spanking him, you're beating him. You're like, oh yeah, that didn't work. Watch this. I'll do it harder. Well, no, we can't do that, right? There's an application of that method. Doesn't work with that kid. It doesn't really work when I do it. He's, and you may have had a kid like that. Like you, you give that kid a spanking and they're like, oh yeah, that's all you got. Or maybe they're screaming because it hurts. And as soon as they're done screaming, they're like, yeah, I'm going to do that again. Because that doesn't really work for me. Okay, so, so understanding the way that each kid is shaped is very important during the cop phase. Because the application of law is not the same from kid to kid. The principle is the same. And the principle is, I've got to bring this child to a place where they're in submission and they recognize that I'm in authority. So how do we get there? And that, and that, that authority is a, it's a healthy view of authority. So the cop phase, that's usually going to be somewhere uh, between age... Uh, birth and between somewhere around eight and nine that's the cop phase um, and what 
uh, and if we don't deal with that phase properly, that child will be conditioned by one of two extremes. Number one, um, the natural sin nature of that child will rule and reign in his or her life. Paul tells the Romans, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its demands or desires or lusts. And so if I don't, if I don't execute the responsibility of a cop, a police officer, a law enforcement officer in my child's life, then their flesh becomes boss and they submit to the whims of their flesh. And we've all seen that happen with a three or four or five-year-old. It's the reason they call it the terrible twos, right? So when that kid gets to about eight or nine, hopefully I've done that effectively because it's very difficult to impose the cop phase on a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy. I got a 17-year-old boy that's 6'3 and deadlifts almost 400 pounds. So what happens when his 5'7", 120-pound mama needs to put him in his place? That's not happening, is it? Not if he doesn't want it to happen. So the cop phase is critical in the early develop developmental stages of that kid's life. I know that a lot of you are past that, but these principles build, okay? And there's a way we can circle back if we miss some of it. Um, and you're going, oh, it's too late for me to do that. It's not too late. So if I don't do it right, the sin nature enslaves the child and and. And worse, the child will be conditioned by me enabling and emboldening him. So I, I cannot be an enabler for that child. How many times have we seen parents think a little child is cute when that child is acting defiantly? And it's not cute. It's really not cute. It's definitely not going to be cute when they're 14 and they're, and they're still acting the same way. So I cannot enable um, areas that this is most likely to glare and stand out would be the way they treat their mother, the way they learn to share, and the way they respond when spoken to. You can study the effects of am I doing this correctly by watching that little child and saying, how does he or she respond to his or her mother? How does he or she respond when spoken to? Do they share? Do they understand? These are the things that we can sort of control in that phase of life to, tar to, to start to teach them that you're not in control and life is not about you and you're not the center of the universe. Because that's what it boils down to. The center, they're the center of their own universe. And we've all been around, let's be honest, we've all been this person, but we've also been around adults who... They're the center of the conversation. My job, my money, my this, my that, I, I, I. So that's natural for a child to do that. I want to eat. I want to sleep. I want to poop. I want, you know, like they're just acting on straight instinct and expecting us to work within the confines of that instinct. And so I cannot enable and embolden that because it teaches that kid that they're in charge. Uh, um, next is the coach the coach phase. So we go from cop to coach. That's going to be somewhere around 8 to 10 through 16, 17. If I've done the first stage well, then somewhere in this age, there will be a shift in the dynamic of the relationship. So if I do it right in the first phase, that second phase, there'll be a definitive shift. That shift could be when we change the way we're disciplining in terms of method. You know, like I don't, I'm not going to spank my kid past about age eight. Uh, my dad whooped me until I was 17 years old and I don't think it was good. It, it created a very angry, rebellious teenage boy. Like I was angry at him, but scared of him. So I acted it out elsewhere. Okay. So somewhere there's a shift. And with that, and, and for us, it's been, I spanked the boys longer than I spanked the girls. We stopped with the girls pretty early in the game. Um, so somewhere between ages eight and 10, typically we're going to go from cop to coach. And that's going to carry through about age 16, 17. So I'm going to and so if you think of a coach, if you played sports, you had a coach who had authority in your life, they could discipline you, they could punish you in certain ways. Um, 
But at the same time, they weren't, they weren't the law in your life. They ha- so we're beginning to shift towards coaching that kid through life. Let me tell you, some of you already lived through this. Let me tell you a stark reality. When you marry your daughter off and you realize, I am never going to be in a position of headship in her life again. I've, it's done. I'll never, in fact, we encouraged, um, we encouraged our daughter and son-in-law to move far from us in the early stages of their marriage. In fact, they're going across the Atlantic Ocean, so it's going to be great. All right, like, y'all go away from us. We love you. We'd love to have you next door. We got a little, we got a little Airbnb house, like 100 yards from our front door. We'd love for y'all to live there. It'd be awesome. That's what people do in small mountain towns, and families grow on the same road, and some of you come from communities like that. But I said, what you need to do is you need to, go. when I talked to him on the front end, and he came to me, and I said, listen, dude, I have, I have invested my life into this girl, but when this transition happens, I'll no longer have that role at all in any capacity. Hopefully I get to play a patriarchal role, but I'm not going to play a role of headship. And so when I make that transition, you're in charge. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it hard on you on the front end. Because once that happens, I can't make it hard on you. The question was asked this morning, what do we do with our grown kids when they're going through situations? And the answer was given, you pray for them and that's really all you can do. I think, I think Spicy said, offer to, offer to pay for counseling. It's about as intrusive as you can get. Because leave and cleave means they abandon what they once knew in terms of the home and the colony and the, you know what I mean? So, so getting this right in, in the right uh, progression is critical because when I start into the coaching phase of those teenage years, I'm preparing them for the next phase where they're going to go and be independent. And hopefully I'm going to get to play the role of the third C, which is counselor. Hopefully they'll look to me as a counselor. Hopefully they'll come to me for wisdom, for counsel, for investment. And so it goes cop, coach, counselor. And somewhere around the age 16 or and no later than 18, I should be moving into that counselor role. So if I've done the first stage well, then somewhere around age 10, I'll start shifting in the dynamic of the relationship towards coaching. And if I do that right, then somewhere around 18, 16 to 18, I'll start to shift towards counselor, counselor, which is a great honor to get to play that role. If I flip-flop the first two, it's really hard to get to the last one. If you flip-flop, if you, if you play coach in the early stages and you're trying to just kind of help them navigate the terrible twos and the, you know, the idiosyncrasies of being a rebellious, unregenerate, sinful demoniac at age five, right? That needs Jesus really bad, you know, and you're tempted to just pull out a profession of faith and baptize them. Maybe that's magical or something, you know, and it's like, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to survive this? You're like, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm trusting the gospel. This kid's going to change. But if you coach them through that, and then you try to enforce the rules when they're 15 it's not going to work so it's it's important to get this in the right order now here's some considerations for raising teenagers in the coach phase and then i'm going to pause and take questions considerations for raising teenagers in the coaching phase first communicate 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 it's important communication the second thing communication is not only that i'm speaking but it's that i'm listening so i listen as often as i speak I listen as often as I speak. I'm listening. I'm not only speaking. When possible, if they'll actually talk. And I know this can be its own challenge with teenagers. They don't always want to talk. But I'm listening as often as I'm speaking. Next, expressions of love that remind them that you love them unconditionally. 
expressions of love that remind them that you love them unconditionally. Next, maintain a firm but loving position of authority. Remember, God has placed you in charge. So maintain a position of authority uh, through those teenage years. It's firm, but it's loving. And last, work to remove guilt and shame when they fall. Don't exasperate them. In other words, the scripture would say, don't exasperate them. Work to remove shame and guilt when they mess up, when they fall, when they crash, when they have difficulties and struggles. Um, very important. Okay, let's pause. Questions, comments at that point, and we'll keep rolling. I can seriously teach on this subject for days. See all those pages? Okay, so it's... <laughs> uh, we, we don't have a shortage of material, but let's, what, what do we got? Yeah. Question, Brady. So, specifically in regards to boys, so, you know, Courtney and I, as we're thinking about, we just have two boys right now, we want them to be both bold, encouraging them to be bold, to be assertive, to be intentional, but at the same time, tender and caring. And so I'm wondering, like, with your boys, what are some things that you feel like have been helpful in, in both formal and informal ways as you're kind of, you know, going through those years and teenage years. Okay. Question is, raising boys, um, and what are their ages? Five, we're four and two. Four and two. So raising boys, what's it look like to get them ready to be strong and tough and rough and like that, but to be tender and compassionate? And so I think it's uh, Douglas Wilson in the book Father Hunger that refers to biblical manhood as the equivalent of a velvet-covered brick. And I love that picture. Like, that's the kind of man I want to be. Strong, strong, hard on the inside where, where you need to be, but soft in the areas where you need to be. And so um, how, do, how do you nurture that in a boy? I think reading the bent of that kid, because some boys will crawl up on their mama's lap a lot longer in life and hug her than others will, are not affectionate like that. So studying the bent of that kid, and then something that I think is very critical is is doing rough, hard things with your boys. And mama, don't helicopter. My, last night, look, my son, he, he, plays, he plays quarterback in a, men will appreciate this. Women won't know what I'm talking about. He plays quarterback in a triple option offense. Last night, if he got hit once, he got hit 200 times. This Every Saturday morning, it's the same story. Bruises, contusions. There was blood last night. Last week, he had claw marks. Looked like he'd been in a fight with a cat. I mean, banged up, beaten up. Along the way, he's broken a collarbone, broken a wrist. And you know what? It, the first few times stuff happened, I'm like, little, gotta let him, you got you to gotta let him just sort this out. It'll feel better when it stops hurting kind of thing, you know? And, and so that's hard, like figuring out where's the balance because I want to go. And so I, I told, uh, we made a rule when, when Tuck was like in the second grade. We will never go out onto the field or the court unless the, the paramedics call us. So if he goes down hurt, there's a team trainer and a paramedic on site. They're the professionals. We'll meet them at the ambulance headed to the hospital unless they call us down because it's that serious, okay? Because here's what I've seen. Uh, there's this kid last year in a basketball game. My son also plays basketball. There's a kid in a high school varsity basketball game. Roughest, one of the roughest, toughest kids I know. At least that's his persona. 
He falls with a boo-boo in a game. He sprained his ankle really bad. Had to sit out about four games from another team. But we were playing against this team. Ah, he goes down. Ah, grabs his ankle. His mom goes running out there. She's caressing him and rubbing his face. I was like, he's done. I don't care how big his truck is or that at 16 he's already got a tattoo. Doesn't matter. He's done. His mama just stroked his face in front of the student section. All right, like, like whatever you got to do, mom. Sit on your hands, leave the building, do something, all right? So it was literally the next game, <laughs> the next game, Tuck dives on a ball. This is basketball now, not football. Dives on a ball, kid twice his size, comes down the back of his head. You could hear his face smash the floor. Mugs, you there, you remember this? Nose, boom, explodes. Face is smashed, lips swollen in the floor, and, it, and he's just not moving. And Little goes, come on, Tuck. Come on, you'll be all right. Shake it off. You know? <laughs> Trainer's like limping him out. He's like this, going to the training room, you know. He's a boy. They're, they're going to be fine if they bleed. They're going to be fine if something gets broken. So mamas especially, let them get banged up and dinged up, okay? Now, so on the one side, whether it's play an army in the encourage outdoor play. Take this crap away from them. Like quit, like, like quit waiting in line entertaining that kid like this. And quit spending time with the kid where you're being entertained like this with the Facebook or whatever, okay? Like disconnect from that and push them outside. You guys, you guys that are my age, I'm almost 50. You guys that are my age, you know, you remember what it's like in the, in the 70s and 80s. My mom was like, uh-uh, I will call you inside at supper. Do not come in before. I got to take a poop. Go to the woods. Go to the woods. You ain't coming in here. You are muddy from head to toe. I can remember pooping my pants when I was 11 years old at Shannon Shepherd's house because I was like, I got to poop. And he's like, my mama said we can't come in until supper. And I was like, I got to poop bad. And he's like, you better go. He lived in a subdivision. In my house, I go to the woods. He lived in a subdivision. I was like, where do you poop outside around here? You know what I mean? Like, stay outside, play hard, do rough things. Do Like, that's the way it works, okay? But here's what happens. In the evenings, we sit down and we have story time and we, and we read the stories of what Jesus did for, for, for people that were broken and, and downtrodden and damaged and wounded. And we look at the woman at the well and we look at Lazarus and his sisters and, and then we talk about the value of, our, of, of, of the, their mother and I, I show them that value. She's very important. We talk about it. We pray about it. There's only three rules in my house. Don't lie is the first one. Don't dishonor anybody and take care of mama at all costs. That's our three rules. Because like in the Garden of Eden, there was only one rule. It was a thousand yeses. 10,000, yeah, you can do that. Yes, 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 yes. We got one rule. Don't eat the fruit off that tree. All right, you, like, that's what our homes should look like. There's a thousand yeses. The side of the mountain is a yes. Tuck comes, Tuck, I got so ridiculed by a couple folks, I won't say, say who. My son was like 12 years old, takes a shotgun on opening day of turkey season, leaves, comes home 11 hours later with a dead turkey. And somebody said, he's 11, you let him take a gun? I was like, okay. Quit watching CNN. <laughs> like, welcome to the mountains, you know? Like, there's a need for a boy to feel 
the wind in his face and the dirt in his fingernails and to bleed sometimes and to hurt and to climb the side of a mountain and to do something really hard and then for you to look at him and go, dude, you are bad to the bone. There is not a nine-year-old I know that will do what you just did. They need that. And we live in a society, I'm reading a book right now called The Coddling of the American Mind. And that is the perfect word to describe. Not only have we emasculated a generation of boys and men, we are coddling them in their emasculation. So we've castrated them psychologically and emotionally, and now we're petting them because of it as a society. We've said, we don't want you to be the kind of man that God created men to be according to Scripture. That's not popular to preach like this. I'm not preaching. I'm giving them like a talk. But it's like one of the deficiencies in our society is you're left, when these things don't happen, what you're left with is two rogue forms of manhood. Let me tell you what these two rogue forms of manhood are. One is the abuser because he's going to flesh it out somehow. And so one is the abuser. Maybe he's, maybe he's the drug dealer. Maybe he's the deadbeat dad who smacks his wife around. Maybe, but he's the abuser. The other is the one who shirks and runs from all responsibility. Maybe he dives headlong into the homosexual lifestyle. Maybe he, uh, maybe he chooses to, to live outside of God's plan for what manhood looks like. But at any rate, he becomes a beaten down person who needs a wife who will be strong enough to lead him. Because he's not going to lead because he's beaten down. So we've got to make leaders. Every man, every single man is to be a leader according to God's plan. Now, they're not all naturally gifted leaders of men, but every man's got to lead. So how do I build that? Such a good question. How do I build that but still have him weep for his sisters and his mother and for, like, for the things that break the heart of God? How does that work? That, is, that takes a high level of intentionality because it is not contradictory to teach that version of manhood while also teaching a kind and compassionate and loving one who weeps for the broken, one who cares about those that Jesus cares about. That's what true manhood looks like. Jesus is our supreme example of that. So we t in our home, we take care of mama. We take care of the girls, three girls, and mama has four women in the home. We take good care of them. And we make sure that it's understood that they're very valuable. And we talk about the things that they see day to day as they grow older and they get older. We're talking about, my kids go to public school and we talk about the things they encounter on a day to day basis. Let's talk about that. What was the drama today? And, they, and it doesn't take long. My 10 year old daughter comes home and she says, well, I said, what was the drama today? She said, well, so-and-so's daddy left the family, said he needs space. I was like, let's talk about that. How does that make you feel? You know how it makes me feel? It makes me hurt. It makes my heart ache for that little girl. They need to see their daddy cry and repent and be broken over his own sin. Like, we're not, like the most humbling thing I've ever done, I think, in my life, and it's happened more than once, is to get on a knee and repent to my children because I've not acted as God would have me act as a father. They need to see strength and they need to see humility and softness and gentleness. And we've got to teach it to them. We've got to example it for them. It's our job. It's our responsibility. It's critical. That was a long, aggressive answer, but that's a really good question. Any other, any other questions? Cop, cop coach, counselor? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is where it's hard for single moms, uh, which we don't obviously don't have at this event, but 
this is at our church. We have a hard time teaching this to single moms. So uh, during the cop phase, the most natural acting out that we'll typically see will be with a mom. That child spends more time with mom. They tend to, it's, it's crazy. And your family may not be like this, but I travel. On average, I'll travel a day or two a week. So I'm not like a traveling businessman, but I'm, I'm usually in the last six weeks, I've been in five states, you know, kind of thing. And, and a couple of flights along the way and some long miles on the road. And so I'm traveling and speaking and teaching. So we have found sort of the sweet spot where how long I can be gone till I better get back. Um, now I'm talking about my six-year-old at this point. Um, so, so we have a lot of times we'll have, uh, we'll practice what I call a show of force, um, which comes from something I heard on the news one time, like our Navy went somewhere and they're like, what's our Navy doing over there next to China? Oh, it's a show of force. Like, hey, we're here and we're capable, you know, it's that kind of thing. And so with, with him, as long as he knows I'm around, then, and, and I don't know if your family's like this, there's a different level of healthy fear for dad that doesn't exist for mom. That, and I think God wired it that way. I really do. And I think, so I've heard people say, not in my house, I was scared to death of my mama. My daddy was easy. And I'm like, okay, that's not, that's a little backwards. That's a little bit backwards because mother is the nurturer. Daddy is the protector and the provider. That comes out of Genesis 2. God tells Adam, uh, work and keep, protect and provide or provide and protect. And so there needs to be a nurturing component to dad. Like I, I need to love and nurture and, and, and uh, like that's good. And I love it, man. I love it when my, that little six-year-old boy climbed up on my lap last night and sat on my lap. And, you know, that's awesome. Um, but at the same time, that, going back to that velvet-covered brick, it's, it's very important that mom has the support from dad. Because what happens is mom's going to get tested. And if that testing isn't met, then mom gets disrespected. And once that starts happening, that's a real aggressive, slippery slope where that child no longer respects mom. And if that child doesn't respect mom, then, then that's going to create a ton of problems down the road. And so that's where the cop phase is critical. Dad has to step in and say, no, 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 we're not going to treat mama like that. So we teach at the earliest stage we possibly can how valuable mom is and how much respect mom deserves. And ultimately, we're going to transition that to this is what... It's what God has designed. And so that's where men, it's critical that you don't allow. Uh, one of my closest friends who's executive, he's the director of operations here. He's in here. Matt Jones is in here right now. I remember they have, they've got a son who's 21 and serving Jesus. And he's at Southeastern, um, which is a strong Christian school. And, but I remember he going through a phase, he's probably 14 years old, and he bucked up to mama. So dad put him shoulder blades on the ground first one morning before school. Why? Because that kid got about six feet tall and thought, I'm in charge now. And he needed to be reminded he wasn't in charge. Was that abusive? No, it wasn't abusive. Abusive is something completely different. He put him in his position and explained to him, you do not ever talk to your mother like that, look at your mother like that, impose your will on your mother. That will not fly around here. And that's where I've done this before. I've referred to my wife, to my children, not as your mother, but as my wife. I've said, hey, nobody talks to my wife like that. Nobody talks to my wife like that. It's critical to teach a high value for mom because what is that going to translate to 20 years from now? How he view, yeah, how, how value of his wife, his marriage, yeah. How he views his wife is going is to be a direct reflection on how 
his mother was treated in the home. So the cop phase is the place to really implement that. It's the really the place to implement it. Other questions? Yeah, question was, <clears throat> what happens when the, the six-year-old, you're in the cop phase, six-year-old, this, is, this will happen all the way through life, and some of you have experienced this, where the child will appeal to one parent to try to unify with that parent and let's be against the other parent. You ever had that happen? They run from dad and go to mom. That's where there has to be total solidarity by mom and dad. Like you have got, that child has got to realize what one says, both are saying. And the most, the most difficult parenting counseling situations that I encounter as a pastor is when mom and dad are not dead nuts on the same page. Got to be on the same page. And ladies, that may mean sometimes you got to let dad make a mistake and you got to support it. And I can tell you that will be less destructive than for you to be divided in that kid's eyes and mind. So you've got to be unified. An example would be, okay, I'm pulling out of the air because I've used this one. I've, I've seen this one a lot where mom and dad have different ideas about modesty because dad knows how a man thinks and he has a high value on the purity of his daughter as a man that is beautiful. And a mom will say, but she's cute. I don't see what the big deal is. Why can't she wear that? And dad knows because, because there are 15 and 16 and 17 year old boys and grown men who will have really impure thoughts and motives when it comes to your daughter. And a dad's not gonna let that happen, right? So that's where if a mom doesn't get on board with dad there, it creates a major issue with the daughter who loses respect for dad's authority and begins to run to mom and will create, y'all tracking with me? Is that making sense? will create division between mom and dad. Got to be unified. I use, that's one example. We apply that to a, a small child too, um, and really anything. So it's critical that mom, if, if that kid comes to you and says, dad did this and this and said, I can't do this, then you just say, yeah, yeah, I agree with dad. I agree with dad. And so make sure that you're, that you're unified in that. That's critical. When they're tattletelling on each other, that's just annoying. <laughs> I don't, we don't allow that. Well, I do not allow that. I have... Kids, I, sometimes at camp, I have a camp kid. There's so many little kids running around that are, their parents work on staff here. I have one kid come up to me. I had a kid on staff the other day, a staff kid come up to me and said, he's like, hey, I was dealing with a situation with Moses, my son. And this kid comes up to me and he's like, hey, he did. And he starts poop, 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 telling me what all he did. And I was like, hey, you know what, man? I appreciate it, but I don't need your help. I don't need your help. You need to go away. I'm going to deal with this myself. So I have to do that with your own kids sometimes. Like, hey, I don't need you. I don't, <laughs> I'm the dad. So just making sure you maintain control, a clear picture of authority, and mom and dad are unified. Lots of affection is given. My, my yes is yes. My no is no. I'm not going to do the one, two, three. You better get over here. I'm going to count to three. One, one, Mississippian second of disobedience. Two, Mississippians. Seconds of disobedience. Three, you've been granted three seconds of defiance. Congratulations, little sinner. No, like I said, get over here. You better come right now. There ain't no three count. Okay, so we're teaching them in that, that obedience is immediate. It is responsive and it's for their good. It's for their good. So mom and dad got to be unified on that. We'll go here and in here. Yeah, okay, I, I have some thoughts on that. And then also, you need to sit down with Jennifer Jolly that, that did the Q&A earlier. That's, where, that's the world she lives in, and she's brilliant. 
and super practical. Yeah, so in dealing with foster kids or adoptive kids, um, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Uh, so <clears throat> let, me give you, let me give you a tale of two sons, okay? Um, one son at age five looks me dead in the face and says, no, I'm not going to do that. I know that that child is being purely defiant. That's my biological son. I knew when he did it, we were standing right outside of this building, and I knew he was being defiant, and it spun into a three-hour-long process of breaking his will, the, the biblical and, and in a healthy way, so that he knew I loved him, but I got to work through this. It's defiance, okay? And once we got through it, we were kind of through it. We've never really had to deal with it since then. The second is a child that we got, we brought home when he was almost two years old, who had dealt with neglect, Aban literal abandonment. There's, there's about three months of the kid's life that nobody knows what, no, there's no accounting for. And there are certain neurological connections that just don't get made. You know this, you've read the books, you've looked at the research. If you're fostering, you've hopefully looked at the research on this. So that, when that kid at age five says, no, it is not the same act of defiance. It's just not. So I've got to disengage from well, I know what I did with the last kid that did this. That's not going to work here. And in your case, you can't do it anyway. You can't, you can't spank, you know. So I think when you're in that fostering world or when you're adopting, you've got, especially if, if, especially for those of you that have parented biological kids and now you step into this world, it will cut you for a flip, you know. Um, or, or if you're like, let's be honest, I had this romanticized idea of what it's going to be like to adopt this little, these little people. They're going to finally have a home <laughs> and a dad who loves me. I love him back. I will obey and honor and respect and follow the rules and do everything I'm told. Literally, when I said called by the police, I was not exact. I walk into one of my many calls to the elementary school and I walk in the door and the SRO has him what is it uh, where you're like physically restrained in the floor in the foyer where you walk through the double doors of the school down on the ground he's six five five or six years old this was like, like this was last spring he's six years old I'm like uh she's like I'm just holding him here just he, he's He's already hit and kicked and bit too many people in the last, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in like a, in like a 90 second terror attack. So this is the best I could do. <laughs> so I'm going, okay, how am I going to deal with this? You know? And so I think it's critical. And, and again, I'm going to point you to Jennifer Jolly because her, her insight on this and her training is phenomenal. But I can tell you that for us, there has to be sort of a disconnect from everything that worked the first time through. It's not necessarily going to work the second time through. And that's true with two biological kids. You got two sons, a son and a daughter, two daughters. And you go through with this first one. And then the second one, you're like, what in the I remember my first two kids, biological kids, the one kid, I would look at her and I would say, what do you think you're doing? And she would just lock eye contact with me. She wasn't being defiant. She wasn't, but she wouldn't melt and start crying. Like I could talk really strong to that child. You're not going to act like that. I'm very disappointed in you. Whatever I might say as a 25, 27-year-old dad, you know. And she would just, she just, that kid never melted under discipline. But she responded to it pretty good. And then the next kid comes along and I remember the first time I was like, hey, 
And he went, he like starts shaking, you know, like messed his pants, I think. You know, like, I'm like, oh, whoa, okay. All right, whoa, rein it in. All right, different kid, different kid here. All right, you're making those adjustments. You got to adapt. And so be adaptive. You're not, you're not abandoning principle to apply discipline in a different manner. Okay, and so if that's true with multiple biological kids, it is exponentially true with the fostering kid. And so I think you need a network. You need somebody, you need, when you're dealing with this, you need a network of people. Sometimes all you're doing is venting and getting them to pray for you, you know. I remember, we, so we, Lil and I have had, I don't know, probably a dozen foster kids in our home through the years. And, but what we do is relief and respite. So we never have more than, a, a, I think maybe a month is the longest we've had one. <laughs> you, know, you, get, you get assaulted, you get kicked, you get bit, you get screamed at, you have stuff thrown, and you're like, oh, what am I, how am I supposed to do with this? And just, I think you have to be reminded maybe today that that is a broken child who has no concept of what it looks like to submit to somebody that loves her. No concept. And she can't even articulate that right now. So your, your job is to, I believe, we're, tonight we're going to study the story of Ruth and Boaz, tonight and tomorrow morning. And Ruth in that story is an outsider. She's homeless. She's orphaned in one sense. She's abandoned. She's hurting. She comes to a place where this man, Boaz, brings her into his community, brings her into, ultimately brings her into marriage where he loves the outsider. And it's a beautiful picture of how God takes care of the outsider, right? That child is the outsider. And that child, that child as long as she's acting that way, she's saying to you, I'm the outsider. I'm the outsider. I'm not part of this family. I'm not like your other children. You don't love me the way that you love them. They're just, and it's going to take a long time for you to convince them that you do. And you can't get discouraged when that doesn't happen overnight, you know. So just be, I think being reminded of that. But make sure you talk to Jennifer. Phenomenal. She, like, she'll give you really practical doing things. Not just thinking and hearing, but doing things. What else? Okay, really good question. Uh, <clears throat> You've got biological kids in the home and then foster or adoptive kids in the home. How do you deal with the tension between the two kids? Like where the biological kids are saying, why don't you parent the same way? And the, and the foster or adoptive kid is going, you love that child more. That's a lot. There's a lot of tension there. And I'm, I'm telling that is a real tension that we have had to, we're still dealing with that. One of the things I find I have to be real careful of is, um, tension between two of two of my kids particularly two girls that are closest in age even though there's a good age gap but they're the closest the older is the biological the four-year younger is the adopted daughter I have to be real intentional there because there's a natural tension that builds between those two they're just close enough in age and I've got to make sure neither of them feels like there's favoritism and that that takes a real intentional effort and it's critical that you work towards that um, but I think uh, hopefully you can and what you have to be careful of don't turn your biological kids into uh, like co-parents does that make sense because for in ours we've got we chose to make sure that we didn't break birth order it's not necessarily right or wrong but from from working on this side of it for so when I was a kid my mom fostered and she fostered a couple of older kids for long periods of time. I had, I was the oldest biological kid and she fostered a boy for about five years who was, he was, I won't say he's abusive to me. He was mean to me at one point, like uh, tried to kill me like as a kid. I didn't know my mom 
found out, you know, told me later and I found out, but I was like six and I was in bed and he was going to kill me one night. And he ended up, dude ended up trying to commit suicide, went out in the driveway and shot himself in the face with a 12 gauge and it blew the side of his face. So it was a crazy story. And so I remember what it was like to live through that as a seven, eight, nine year old kid. And so when we decided we we're going to foster and adopt and definitely wanted to adopt, that was something we want to not break birth order. But the, the, the caveat with that, the tricky part of that is making sure those, th bringing the three older kids into the conversation was important because we wanted it to be partly their decision too. We want them to be on mission. But you got to be careful because then you isolate, they feel a sense of superiority to these two kids that we've brought into the home. So now they're sort of co-parenting. You know, we brought them into the conversation and, I had to, and so I had to kind of deconstruct that and say, no, 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 no. All five of you are the same. Me and mom are different. It's not the five biological are the same and the two are different. You're wrong. The five of you are our children. I wouldn't even use the, I wouldn't even use the word foster or adopt, you know. Um, it, we don't even talk like that. I mean, my two adopted kids are jet black. I mean, they're like Sudanese purple, you know, like... <laughs> They're dark. There's no, nobody's looking, nobody's like at the supper table, nobody's looking around going, <laughs> Juju, my 10-year-old, she's playing on a volleyball team with a bunch of the snowbird kids, like a little rec league volleyball team. Everybody had to get knee pads. Every kid, she's the only black kid on the team. Every kid gets black knee pads. She got white knee pads. She comes up to me and she says, you know what? People are going to know. I'm going to stand out to people. You know why? And I'm going, this ought to be good. Why? She said, because I got white knee pads. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's working. She doesn't realize yet. You know, like, so that's good. But like trying to, trying to, and like, in our case, it's very obvious because of the skin color. But in a, in a situation where everyone's the same skin color or everyone, you, you could pass for biological siblings. We're just always trying to make sure we, we erase those lines so that it's just, you're the children, we're the parents. So now it takes, here's, here's where you have to connect, tons of intentional one-on-one -on -one time. Because we can't do this in a group setting. I can't say to the whole family, now, here we are, the five of you, the three biological children, the two adopted children. Uh, you're not totally adopted yet, but don't worry, we'll get through it. I'm having confidence in the legal system. You know, like it took us three years to get them legally adopted. Three years, you know. And so it's like uh, they're living here, but there's this sense of, oh, I'm going to have to go back. I'm not, this is not my home. It takes forever to get them convinced that this is their home, you know. And so we're not, we're not feeding into that. We're trying to actually dispel that, which means sometimes you got to let that kid act a little bit crazy and everybody's just got to be okay with it. And other times it's intentional one-on-one -on -one time with each child where to this biological child, I'm, I'm expressing and confirming and affirming my love and, 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 and that child's value. But I'm also in that one-on-one -on -one expressing affirmation for this other child, not saying, now, you know, your little brother, he's kind of crazy. Remember, he's adopted. Not doing that. We got to erase that the, the, or else it'll never work. It will never get that kid where these kids are or these kids, you know, it'll never be a true blend. And so, and you'll, it might be a situation where, well, we know this is a temporal, temporary adoption. So if I know for a fact I'm doing this for several weeks, then yeah, that's different. I'm going to bring that kid in as an honored guest. We're going to show you what the family's like. But if I'm really working towards long-term 
solutions for this kid, I've got to immediately begin to graft that kid in. Because this, again, you've, we've got a dysfunction in the way that kid processes all information. And, you know, you talk to their, once she goes to preschool or whatever, you know, you'll be able to talk to the preschool teacher and she's going to say, yeah, she, she doesn't act the same way as these kids that come from really grounded, solid families. Uh, I didn't mean for this to turn into adoption and fostering, but I'm cool with it. I'm very passionate about it. So um, what was your question? You said he's in the middle? He, yeah, he's my middle kid. So give me the age breakdown again. So the boys are 21 months apart, so they're 9 and 8 right now. And then I have a 5-year-old. Boy or girl? Girl. It's my, yeah, boy, it's boy, girl. Boy, boy, girl. Right, so the 8-year-old boy. Yeah. So we got 8-year-old boy, 9, 8, and then a little girl behind him. Yeah. All homeschooled. Yep. And dad's on the road a lot with work. Just right now. Yeah. For right now. Yes. Um, for When you say for right now, So you're working off like Monday to Friday kind of thing, Monday to Thursday. Yeah, and it's and he's like right now he's probably going to be gone for the next month. Okay. When we get home, they haven't seen him for two weeks, and then he'll probably be gone for the next month. So not Monday to Friday, but like gone. Weekends. So gone for a thirty days straight. Okay, I'm going to say something really hard in front of all these people. <laughs> if that's going to continue, you need to change career paths, and that's hard to say out loud. Now, I think for a season, you're good. There's, I mean, yeah. But, yeah, if it's a season, that's fine. But if it, tur- I would just make it known to your company, hey, this, we'll get through this project, but um, this kid's behavior is telling me, I mean, what, I'm, not, I'm not a child psychologist, but we've had 120,000 teenagers come through Snowbird. That's a lot of human behavior observation. And what I've found to be true is that the physical absence of dad um, now, dad can be physically a- absent and emotionally and spiritually present, which is what y'all are doing, and that'll work for a season. That'll work, okay? Now, what will not work is dad's home, but he's checked out. That's way worse. 
So I would rather be in a situation where dad's gone physically, but he's engaged through FaceTime, and then when he is home, he's engaged. That's going to be fine. That's going to work versus a dad who comes home, cracks a beer, goes to the shop out back, ignores the kids. You know what I mean? So that would be – that. you're not in that situation. So, But I do think uh, for a season you're going to be fine, but I'd give it a year or two, and then I'm like – because what's going to happen is this little dude, what's his name? Zane. Zane, Zane is going to, he, I, I tell people, Moses is either going to be like a world changer or go to jail. <laughs> you know, like there's going to be no in between. And so a kid like that's got to have a strong presence of dad. And again, I think, and gosh, this may not be appropriate to do in front of all these people. And, but you guys, your hearts are pliable, and you're before the Lord. You're obviously seeking wisdom before the Lord. And so God's, he's got you. You're, Zane's going to be fine. Zane's going to be awesome. And he got saved. So, you know, we're, we're then reminded, now we get to lean on the promises of Scripture that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it, that God is the author and the finisher, perfecter of, of Zane's faith. So he's going to complete that work. But um, so you're just going to have to muscle your way through this month in this season till dad can be more present and he'll be fine he'll be fine you're just so you got to work on you you know day to day it's like okay and that's that's where i think um you ever you ever read about jonathan edwards wife they said that you know she was raising like 11 kids and somehow she managed to get up early enough to have a really long time with the lord every morning and uh, and said that it was a one-room cottage so she would squat and pull her petticoat over her head and make a little tent and they knew if mom was in that position, you better be quiet. You better not come near her, you know, like. And so you find in that alone time with yourself, when, when dad comes home, mom's got to bug out and get out of here for a day or two, you know, like just what, but part of what you're navigating right now is just the hardship of parenting. It's not supposed to be easy, you know, it's supposed to be hard. Anything worth, anything of value is always going to be hard, you know, it's why I, Marriage is hard it, it, because it's so valuable to God. It's such a beautiful picture to God. And, and the same is true with, with child rearing. And so um, I think y'all are in a healthy place because where your hearts are at. Um, I feel sorry for you. I flew into St. Louis two weeks ago to preach. I'm, I'm sorry you live there. <laughs> I thought, thank you, Lord, that this is a temporary trip. And no, I'm just kidding. I just love the mountains. But, um, but anyway, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, you're going to be fine. But I think to give you like help, instruction, and direction is just, it's going to be a hard few years. You're in, you're in that transition from cop to coach phase. And it's just hard because he's very independent. What's the nine-year-old boy like? He's just chill. Easy. Yeah. So, so make sure you never let Zane feel like he's being compared to that son. That will unravel him because he'll feel like he never lives up to the super sibling. And that's real destructive for a kid. A younger kid, a younger boy who has an older boy, it's the prodigal son story. You ruin both kids when you do that. The younger one feels like I'm out and, and leaves. And the older one comes to a place of superiority. And he's got a hard, prideful heart. And it's destructive. So making sure that you just are intentionally working with both those boys, they're going to be great. And they're going to be best friends. You know, come close. Yeah, they'll come close to killing each other along the way. Me and my brother, so close, you know, we about killed each other multiple, literally. 
There, I remember an axe. I remember homemade dynamite, homemade bomb. I remember uh, trying to run over one brother, trying to run over the other one with a truck. We won't say who was who. But <laughs> so anyway, and now we're best. We're, we're, we're good. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, they're going to be fine. But just, uh, I think, just keep, keep focusing on Jesus when dad's home. And you're talking to him at night and you're FaceTiming and it's going to be fine. But, yeah, I would say if... If your boss starts jerking your chain and saying up oh, and keeping you on the road, you'll have to, you'll have to come home because that kid's too strong. He's got to have he's got to have you around, you know, or he's gonna he'll end up running the pirate ship. Yeah, yeah, he needs dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he will be. Well, because, yeah, because he's strong. And he, so he fears dad because dad's stronger. But he thinks, and this were some of these principles we've already talked about. You'll be the one that implements that high regard for mom and the way he sees you loving mom. And let's, let's take mom out, I, you know, let's take mom out for a meal together. So now it's not a mama-son date or daddy-daughter date, it's the boys are taking. Me and you are going to take your mom out for supper, just the three of us, and we're spending that time together. I think, you know, we, we, tend, to get, we tend to get caught in a rut, a thousand ruts, so we got to think outside of the box. So let's, the two guys, take mom out, and you're being real intentional teaching, teaching him that respect and that regard for mom. So let me, let me uh, yeah, let me give you... Um, let me give you a couple of principles here, and then we'll, we'll close with more Q&A that can last as long as we want it to. Um, Ephesians 6, 4, we read this, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is Ephesians 6, 4, and it gives one instruction and one prohibition. One instruction, one prohibition. The instruction, or the prohibition, rather, is do not provoke. The instruction is bring them up. Okay, so let's, let's unpack this. Let me give you some things that, again, this comes from a couple decades of parenting, but also from 25 years of student ministry and observing other people's kids. We've got now, we've now got, uh, we've now got second generation high schoolers coming to camp. So their parents were campers here and now they're campers. And so we've been able to observe and see. And so let me tell you what will provoke. Um, quicker than anything, inconsistency will provoke. So I have to do what I say I'm going to do. I have, they need consistency in their life, and a, and a bed of consistency has to be the parental unit in their, in their home. So they have to know my, my parents are consistent. We, we talked about being unified. You've got to be unified. We've got to be consistent. And so I'm not going to be wishy-washy. I'm not going to change uh, on the fly. And when I, when I say not change, not, I'm not talking about being adaptive, but I'm talking about say you're going to do something, then you don't do it or threaten with empty threats, or react one way to one kid and the exact opposite way to the other kid, and both are impulsive reactions. So inconsistency will, will provoke them to anger. Um, next, don't take into account the fact that their kids will make this available. So if you're trying to write this stuff down, I don't think we have it up on the board. Um, it's, we've got it already, but if, if you're trying to write it down, don't, don't freak out if I go too fast. Uh, don't take into account the fact that they are kids. Um, don't compare them to others. 
Don't compare them to others. Don't, don't say, both internally and externally, don't say, why can't you be more like your brother? He's such a good kid. You'll unravel that kid. So don't compare him to others. This is especially true, obviously, with fostering and adoptive kids. Why can't you be more like so-and-so? Why can't you be more like, your, you know? That, and then also don't compare them to other people's kids. You know, like um, your, your best buddy's son who doesn't act the same way. And he's a, why can't you be more like Mike's kid? You know, Mike's kid, so, you know, he's, he's a good kid. Tyler's a really good kid. He's always obeying his dad. He's respecting his mom. Why can't you behave like him? I've seen dads do that a lot. And that's real disruptive. Um, that, that will provoke a kid. Failure to express approval over hard-earned accomplishment. Failure to express approval over hard-earned accomplishment. They work hard to accomplish something. It may not seem like a big deal to you. Express approval over that. Failure to express or speak love to them. You've got to express love to them. You've got to speak it, articulate it. You've got to say it. I love you. I'm proud of you. Nothing you could do, nothing you could ever do can make me love you more or less. I love you. It's, in, it's intrinsic because what we're doing is we're showing them intrinsic love. Intrinsic love is love that comes from within me and is projected onto them. In other words, they've done nothing to earn that love. It's not love based on their value to me. It's love based on my, it, it, it starts within me and is projected onto them, which you think um, is how God loves us. Uh, force my goals for them in life. Force my goals for them in life. I, I, I think specifically of not every kid's cut out to go to college, but some kids definitely need to go to college, you know. Well, I want you to go to college. you at a, at a guy, a friend of mine, man, he's a good dude. Good old boy, deacon at his church, local church, good dude. He was asking me about my daughter getting married. And, you know, she got married at 19. She finished one year of college, got married. And, and he said, man, what, do you, what in the world, what did you think about that when she said she's getting married? And I was like, no, no, no. That's not how it works at my fam, in my family. Like, she didn't come home one day and say, I'm getting married. It was a process. And we'd actually prayed from the time she was 12 that she would marry young and marry someone older and marry someone committed to the mission field. He's seven years older. She got married at 19. They're going to the mission field. Those are like, you can trust that God will answer prayer in your kid's life. You can trust that. And so uh, this guy says, I told my daughter, you're going to college. You're getting a degree. And don't even talk to me about getting married until after you're done. And I'm like, okay, that's great. What you're doing is you're forcing your goals on that, on that kid. And I know we want to put high level of responsibility on them and certain expectations and demands. It's a fine line. And that might be right for one kid, but not for the next. You know, there's, I talk, I talk to young men all the time. I'm like, what do you want to do with your life? I don't know, man. I feel like I've got to figure out where I'm going to go to college. Well, maybe you need to go to diesel mechanic school, you know? Maybe you need to go learn, learn how to frame and roof and work in the construction industry. Maybe learn how to fix appliances. You know, like there's, there's a lot of times we tend to force our own goals on a kid. And we got to be careful not to do that. It'll provoke them to anger. Ignore his or her dreams or goals. Some of his or her dreams or goals will come to fruition and some of them will not. I'm going to be a singer. I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to win The Voice. I'm going to get a contract and win a Grammy. Grammy's the singing one, right? I'm going to win a Grammy. <laughs> I'm going straight to the top. Okay, okay. You know, they're probably not going to do all those things, but I'm not going to tell them. I'm going to say, yeah, you know what? You have, you have the capability of doing that. I believe you could do that. 
and I'm going to do everything I can to help you get that. Whatever, you know, just they, they don't provoke them, but make sure they know that you're going to empower. Unless their goal is, you know, I want to be a stripper. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I know you can do it. And I'm not saying like all of this has to be taken with wisdom, right? So if your kid, and that's an extreme example, obviously. But if your kid says, uh, you know, like if your kid's wanting to go, like if you've got a kid that you know, you know that kid could not handle leaving home at 18 and going to a state university, living on campus, that that lifestyle would suck them in and drag them away. Then now I've got to, I've, I'm not imposing my goal to try to counsel them out of that. I don't think you're ready for that. Now, we want to get you ready for adulthood, but we're probably going to put that kid in community college and get him a job working close to home. And you know what I'm saying? Like, that's where I've got, I'm not in the counselor phase, the coach and counselor phase, that transition. I've got to really help them navigate that. Uh, last, you'll provoke them if you make fun of them or if you belittle them. Don't make fun, don't belittle. Next, it says bring them up. So we're to bring them up. How do we bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? We value them. In Greco-Roman culture, children were not valued at all. In our world, they're often either not valued or the other extreme, which is they are overvalued. Just consider the abortion epidemic or the fostering epidemic or consider the epidemic of kids who are rich, snotty, entitled snowflakes, right? They've been told that they're perfect and great and wonderful and they should, they should, they should get a place on the starting squad because they're special, you know, when maybe they're not very good at baseball, to be honest, you know? So, um, so in, our, in our world, what we want to do biblically is we want to value them, but that needs to be biblical value, you know, like gospel value. Don't idolize them. It used to be people carry a wallet with pictures. Some of you can remember this. Some of you is before your time. But you'd have, a, you'd have a stack of pictures in your wallet, and it would fold out like this. And it'd be a bunch of pictures. And, you know, the guy that would have all the pictures of his kid. Okay, and now people do it on their phone. Oh, here she is at the dance competition. Here she is, first day of school. Great, that's awesome. We want to value them. But we've we got to be careful we don't idolize our kids. Is that easy to do? Yeah, it is. Laying in bed two nights ago. Um, laying in bed praying for my middle daughter saying God you have tapped into a place in my soul that I did not even know existed with the love I have for this kid there's something about this human that is that has taken me to a and I think it's where I am in life and my age and I'm laying there and I mean I pray similar prayers for each kid but this was last last night laying in bed praying for this one particular daughter and I'm saying You've taught me things that I didn't know were real about myself emotionally. Please help me to love her right, but to not her, love her more than I love you. To not idolize her. That's important. Don't live vicariously through them. Don't live vicariously through them. Like you had your teenage years, don't try to, you know, don't try to relive them through your child. That, that, that will exasperate a kid. Don't obsess over their achievements. Don't obsess over their physical appearance. You need to eat less brownies and exercise more. <laughs> like that'll, that'll uh, exasperate a kid. Bowing to their whims or demands. Don't do it. If you're bringing, an up, if you're bringing them up, then it's your responsibility um, to lead them and not to bow to their whims or demands. They need a buddy, but they don't only need a buddy. They need a father and a mother. Number three, so the first one, number one, do
do not provoke. Number two, bring them up. Number three, we got two more and we're done. Number three, set an example for them. How do I set an example for them? Integrity in the way I live my life. Honesty in the way I live my life. Respect for law enforcement and the law. Understanding of money and stewardship. Uh, love for the church. Be relational with other people. Have people in your home. Practice hospitality. Express thankfulness and thanksgiving. Don't covet. Don't fight. Don't fight one another in the home, but fight against materialistic ideas. Minister together as a family, in the community, in missions, and in your prayer life. And all these things set an example for them. Number four, spend intentional time with them. It's easy to do when they're little, but it's most critical in their teenage years. Especially with your girls dealing with boys and gossip and body image and pornography and drugs. A little girl I was mentioning to you earlier, she's 14. She is like beast mode when it comes to, she loves to train hard. And so I don't know where this came from. I didn't start like asking her, hey, you want to go to the gym? You want to do, I got a brother who has a CrossFit gym and she's like, I want to do that. Well, I'm not, it's not really my thing. And so I'm like, that'll be fun. We'll do this together. And so this kid, I can't even explain how intense she is. I've never seen a 14-year-old girl with this intensity. So I gave her like a, she had like a four-round workout the other day. She had to go do four rounds. Each round was like four exercises, seven repetitions each, so 28 in a round. She does the four, and she's like sweating and breathing hard. She's like, I'm going to keep going. I'm like, all right, go for it. So she goes again. I'm like, all right, five rounds. She says, I want to keep going. She ends up doing 10 or 11 rounds. She had these big, huge blisters on her hands. And she went, look at this. It's awesome. <laughs> like, okay, you're not a normal 14-year-old girl, you know. Um, but so I tell you the story to say this. I've started really enjoying it. It's like every day, Monday through Friday, she's like, she calls me right when she gets done with school, about 3 o'clock. What time, what time can you break away to put me through a workout? I'm like, oh, baby, I'll go right now. Like, it's priority. So and I work at Snowbird in my, my weekdays when I'm in town are a little bit flexible, so I'll break away, go do it. It dawned on me the other day, we better have this talk. So we sit down there and I explain to her, hey, this is awesome that you're driven to this, but you better be careful about body image obsession because that will come like that. All of a sudden, you'll be looking at your muscle tone. You'll be looking at your shoulders or your legs. Oh, that I need to trim that. That's not what this is about. If this is about athletic performance, I will drive you in the ground. But if it starts being about, do you look cute in a pair of tight pants, then we're done. So why, why did I have that conversation? Because she's 14, and what are 14-year-old girls obsessed with and talking about? If she's in the eighth grade, she'll be a freshman next year. That's it, man, body image. We deal with it week in and week out here at camp. It, it, it consumes girls, consumes them. All right, so paying attention to those things. Teenage years are critical. And then listen to them. We said that earlier. Listen to them. Spend intentional time with them. Listen to them. Don't just talk to them. And last, number five, make disciples of them. To do that, I've got to discipline effectively, discipline consistency, work the work of discipline serves a couple of purposes. One is to restore fellowship. Another is for reconciliation, but it's never for retribution or revenge. I don't discipline to get revenge on a kid. Like, I'm going to get you back because you did that to me. Never, ever, ever. So think of it as a, when, when I need to discipline a child, imagine there's a joint that's been dislocated, and I need to put that joint back into place. 
That's what discipline should do. It should be a, a work to put the joint back into place and work towards true repentance, then towards a removal of shame. And I think everything else I'm going to say here, I've already said. There's, there's about nine more things, but they'll be, in the, they'll be on the list when we, when we post it. And I've already said it today. So that's it. Questions, comments, discussion. We've had about a third of our people leave now. I'm just going out and doing wreck and stuff, so, which is great. I'll stay as long as I want to stay. Um, question was, Meredith's question was, uh, with smaller kids, how long is that intentional time that you spend with the kid? How much, how much intentional time? How long is that intentional time? When they're little, it doesn't have to be very long, really. I mean, like 15 minutes. Reading a book to one kid and not the whole group, going and getting on that kid's bed, that's something I'll do, and read a book. Ju- and, I'll, and I'll comment, hey, tonight, this is our night. Tuesday nights is when I read to you, nobody else. This is just our book. You know, there's that feeling of this is special to me. And I'm doing that with each kid, and they all know I'm doing it with the other one. So it's not like they get a sense of uh, like superiority or inferiority. So I go in there, or it's a storybook. What's, you pick the story tonight, and we read it or whatever. Could be, hey, I'm going to pick you up from school today at 3. Don't get on the bus, and we're going to go straight to get ice cream. Or we're home at 3.20, 3.30. We just went, detour, got ice cream, went home. You know, so just at that age, little things. Uh, when they get older, I try to take... I try, to, I try to carve out big chunks of time, and then I try to take, for me, because I travel, I try to take them on a trip with me. So uh, even with Mo, Mo's six. So I told Mo if he went through the whole first six weeks without um, certain disciplinary things happening at school, we had like a list of guidelines, and he did it. I said, then you'll get to skip school, and I'm going to take you on a really cool trip. So I had a board, I mean, I had a meeting with some board members in Greensboro about five hours from here. So I went and picked him up from school at like 11 that morning and we drove out to Greensboro and I set it up to fly radio controlled fighter planes and he the dude was flying them and we're he's doing these aerial because Mo's just fascinated with that stuff and 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 I'm not but I was that day it was pretty cool it was a pretty cool experience dude's like doing dog fights wearing this big airfield and um, out in the middle, of the, it's basically a big soybean field, and Mo's watching. And then he had a little airplane that he got it up, and then he let Mo fly it. So he's flying this airplane around. It's awesome. Landed it, spent the night, went to my meetings the next day, had Mo in tow for most of the trip, then drove back. That was a cool trip. Six years old, he did an overnight trip with me, you know. So they start getting a little older. Once a year, we'll do one of those. So once a year, they're going to go on it, and maybe it's a day trip. It's not an overnight. Maybe it's a. So I would say two to five. Just once a week, at least, I'm carving out. If you can do it every day, like maybe Matthew comes in and reads a story while you're getting the one a bath or whatever, and you're just kind of rotating through at that age, that you could about do it every day. Like a, 15, a five to 15 minute deal, you can, you can cycle through. Like with Juju and Mo, I do it with each of them every night. It's just two now, but I do it with each of them every night. So at young age, I think they don't need a lot of time. When they get older, they need more. With my older kids, it's like, Hey, let's go get a cup of coffee and run to Starbucks and it'll be a two or three hour deal once a week. That's like a tune-up talk where I'm just, and I'm just usually listening. I've got some push button questions that'll trigger conversation. What's going on here? What's going on there? How you doing there? You know, and look for impromptu opportunities. All of a sudden I realize I'm in the car with this kid. Nobody else is with us. Oh, great. Let's turn this into quality time one-on-one. So I'm not on the phone. My rule is if I'm in the car with just one kid, the phone goes on silent and is out of sight. So you turn that into conversation. What are some of those questions that you use to prompt conversation? 
Um, uh, one, one, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that the question was what? How do you get that conversation stimulated, especially when it's a kid that doesn't really talk a lot? Some kids are going to talk a lot, and some are not going to talk so much. Um, one thing that I'll do is I'll say, tell me, I want to hear an interesting story of something that happened today. I mean, I used to come home, I walked down this long gravel road when I got off the school bus and uh, I'd get to the house and we'd play outside till dark and I'd come in and my dad would say, did you learn anything at school today? I remember thinking, no, I don't ever learn anything at school. But somehow I learned how to read and do basic math and it worked out in the end. But, you know, in a microcosm, I didn't learn anything. So I thought that's a good principle, but I'm not going to ask him that. Here's what I'm going to ask him. Every, every day that I can think to do this or that I find myself in a conversation with a kid, I'll say, tell me something interesting. What's something interesting today? And then I'll tell them something interesting from my day. And what I'm doing is I'm teaching them to observe life around them. People don't observe life because they're here, right? So one of the things I've, I've had people tell me before, man, you have such an interesting life. So much happens to you. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's that that much happens to me. I'm constantly paying attention to everything that's going on in life, you know, like, so everything's telling us. Every day a story's getting told. Every day something crazy happens, you know? But too many times I think we're not paying attention. So I want to teach my kids to listen and pay attention and watch life happen. So a great conversation starter is, tell me something cool from today. Or uh, with my girls, I'll always say, what's the drama? And boy, I mean, they'll talk about that mess. Oh, let me tell you what's going on with... Let me tell you what Remy Reed did today. She came in, and, blah, 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 and here we go. But it's, which turns into a teaching opportunity, you know, which is really cool. That's a good question. Yeah, it doesn't. We've got an 11-year-old son, we need to have the, the talks with. You know, how do you uh, that? 11-year-old son, you've got to have the talk. Yeah, that's big, and it's definitely time. They're homeschooled, right? So they're public school? <laughs> you need to have it Monday. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good question and it's so important that dads and moms have that talk uh, so with let's see with I've had this talk with a lot of young men whose moms are single moms and connected to Red Oak and I'll ask them hey who's handling this and they're like I don't even know where to start so we'll, I've, I've had that conversation with a lot of boys and um what I did with Tuck with my oldest boy is we hunt he, he's loved to hunt his whole life I'm a big hunter so we it was spring and he was he was younger but I was starting to hear comments with his buddies like nine years old and I'm starting to hear some really and I know their dads and their family dynamics and I'm not letting him go over to their house but I just I'm hearing this stuff from, you know, from his peer group. And I'm like, ah, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And he was asking some questions. So he was nine, took him, we went turkey hunting, set up the decoys, set up a hen, set up a gobbler. And then I explained to him, you know why we have these two decoys? You know why we turkey hunt in, in April? It's the breeding season. You know what that is? And I just went, I walked, explained how animals breed. And at the end I went, and it's kind of like that with me and your mom. And, uh, and, and I said, but we don't just do that one month a year. We do it all year. And, and I said, that's how you came into the world. And he was like this. I remember he was staring out the, we were in a blind, a little camo blind. He's staring out the window and I remember he went, and I said, what do you think? And he went, whew. 
That's crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I used that. That worked great. And, I've, and I actually, uh, I recommend that, like using animals. Because we also, we've always got dogs. We've got horses. We've got, and so I've used animals with all my kids to be like, Why, what, is, what is that animal doing? And explain it. And you're like, okay, just, okay, so you know, humans are the same. So, um, but what I think, I think a couple, th- couple of goals in doing it, you have to be thorough. Remember that it is sacred. God ordained this, so I want them to have a sacred view of it. But I also want them to enjoy the conversation and be able to laugh and not feel overwhelmed. So I'm like, you know, just trying to keep it just light enough that we can laugh about it a little bit, but serious enough that they understand this is God's design. This is sacred. God put this. This was God's idea. God, I, you know, I always tell my kids when I'm doing this talk, I'll say, um, God created the man. Then when he brought the woman to him and they were naked and unashamed, it wasn't like God said, all right, you guys hang out in the garden. I'm going to go make a ham sandwich. I'll be right back. Don't do anything naughty, you know? And he comes back and he's like, what are you guys doing? No, it was nothing like that. It was intentional. He put them together in a complementary fashion. This is God's plan. It's beautiful to the Lord. So, because what Satan wants to do is he wants to pervert it and create, a, you know, an imposter version or perverted form of it. So, you know, so I want it to be sacred. I want to have fun with it. I want to keep it light. Um, with one of my kids, one of my girls, I think it might be my first one. One of my girls was real young and was asking real hard questions about it. So we got her to about third base. And I said, now your mom will finish this conversation next year. You know, it's like, and so I kind of put that on little to finish that out. And so again, going back to that, it's kind of different kid to kid. And, but 11, yeah, I definitely, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the great gifts of fatherhood. It's like a rite of passage for that child to, you know, there's a large step towards manhood to learn that, what that means. So it's really beautiful. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, so you just want me to kind of address that? Those two boys. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I think that's, we alluded to this a little bit with Zane and his brother. What's the nine-year-old's name? Cademan. Cademan. So it's, it's, the, it's the Luke 14 prodigal story. The, the older brother gets bitter and angry and jealous because dad's giving all this attention to the younger brother. And that, that's, uh, we kind of addressed it when we were talking about fostering and adopting, but it's the whole principle of I've got to be so intentional with each kid. And if one kid is sucking up more of my time, I've got to do the work of engaging the other kid. I just have to. I've got to, I got to give each kid what they need. I've got to, whatever it takes. I have to be intentional with every kid. And you tend to get wrapped up in this one kid over here and you get so consumed in this situation that, yeah, the kid that's taking care of his or herself, you're like, she's good. She's, she's fine. She'll be fine. And then you think, you think that, but she won't be fine. And so that's where as parents, I would say, 
we have to be very intentional with each kid. And we're, there's, so there's like a baseline that I'm going to give every kid. Time, energy, love, affection. And I've got to be intentional with every kid. Then there's going to be certain needs. Some kids are more needy. Other kids are less needy. And so I'm giving everybody the same baseline. But this other graph is like some kids are getting more attention and others are getting less. But I'm making sure the baseline stays in place. What happens is parents abandon the baseline to just deal with the spikes over here. And I've got to maintain the baseline with every kid. That's, that's very important. And it's just time, that's time and energy and input. Yeah, that's hard, man. I, I think what I do with a kid like that, uh, I had a kid that was like that in, at his younger, in, in a younger age, and I would have to um, just keep it more conversational and be very clear in my explanation and keep my tone very conversational. And even to this day, like, I'll be like, hey, man, we got to talk. Like, this is what I say to him. This is a little bit off color. I say, hey man, I'm not busting your nuts or anything. This is not one of those conversations. This is more like, I got my hand around your shoulder and we gotta help, help you through this situation. So he knows, that's my way of saying to him, hey, I'm not mad, I'm not coming at you. you know, so however you gotta communicate that to him and make sure he knows, hey, that we're gonna have these conversations where dad's coaching me and, uh, and finding that. So for me, with that kid, it was figuring out a conversational tone where I'm saying really the same things but I'm saying it in a more conversational tone. I think that's important. Yeah, I haven't figured, I haven't mastered that yet. So. Yeah, and it's tricky. That's me, that's me. Yeah, because you get emotional. Right. And it's hard to not express it with emotion. Okay. So that's where I go for a little walk before I sit down and have that conversation. I get my head clear. Or where y'all talk together. Like, okay, me and Little all the time, man. We're like, let's meet. I got to talk to, I got to talk to whichever kid. Can we tell, we need, we need to talk for a minute. So we'll step away. We'll have a conversation, make sure we're both getting the same, getting on the same page. She has insights to the situation maybe I don't have or whatever. Get on the same page, get my head right, spend some time in prayer, then go ahead and have the conversation and keep it conversational if I need to. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, good question. So uh, five-year-old, how do you teach him, how do you teach him that principle when he's, uh, okay, so it, you've got to be committed to the process. So if it takes 1,000 repetitions of you doing your part, you gotta be committed to doing the same thing 1,000 times. So what he needs to see is consistency. So what he's doing, and probably without even realizing it, he's just pushing to see when there's gonna be a breakthrough from his end. And what you're doing is you're saying, no, we're going to be consistent and this will never change. And so this is where I think it's important there, there, I can remember times where I felt like I had to do something or say something to teach it uh, 500 times and thinking, when is this kid ever going to get it? But it's like, I got to be committed to the process. And no, this, God wrote the process. So if I'll be consistent, 
train, 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 train. And I'll be consistent and trust the power of the word of God. It, that breakthrough will come. And where it's got to come is through regeneration. He's got to be born again. When he goes through new, so you have to keep in context. Now we're dealing with an unregenerate person who is learning how to exercise his will. So until he comes to faith in Jesus, this is, a, this is becoming a gospel issue. When they're three, four, it's not a gospel issue as much. It, I mean, at the root, that's, we know that's what the seed is. But that kid is just kind of acting according to impulsive, sinful nature. It's becoming more willful, which is an expression of that sinful nature that's intentional. I've got to be consistent so that he knows at some point he's going to realize, doesn't matter how many times I try this, I'm not going to break my dad. I'm not going to break him. And he's not mad at me, and he's not going to abuse me. It's not like he's thinking, we're not, I'm not teaching him, hey, if you do that, I'm going to beat you in the ground. It's not that. It's just I'm immovable. I'm an oak. I'm a wall. You're not going to penetrate that. With your, you're not going to take your will and penetrate my goodwill. You're not going to take your rebellious will and, and, and break through my goodwill because what I want for you is what's good and right and holy. I want you to know Jesus. I don't want you to spend an eternity with God and with us. And so I'm, I'm committed to the process. So he's five. This may go until he's eight. But, but he'll, there'll be a breakthrough and you just got to be consistent. So what happens is you feel like, I've done this a hundred times, right? So you got to do it 101. And then 102. And it's just consistency. Consistency. Especially with Meredith. So with mom, where he's trying to impose his will on mom. So I'm going to deal with it. And maybe it's not always the same application of discipline. Sometimes it might be time out. Sometimes it might be a spanking. Sometimes it might be removal of a privilege. Sometimes it may be, you know, I, I, I remember one time I tried the sentence writing thing. I'd spanked Moses like seven times in five days. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I got to take a break. I can't even. Now it's starting to have a psychological effect on me. This was a couple years ago. So was, he had just learned to write. I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm making write a bunch of sentences. And he could barely write. And I was like, you know, write. And I think the sentence was like, I am sorry, you know, or I won't be bad or something like that. It was real simple. I'm like, you're going to write this 20 times. Well, it took him like three hours. <laughs> and then when he was done, he was like, I was like, what do you think? And he's like, that was pretty cool. I was like, okay, so we're not going to use that again. <laughs> he actually enjoyed that exercise, you know. So, so, but experiment and finding different things, you know, like so that it's, but, but being consistent and not changing, being willing to do it as many times as it takes. So important. Yeah. He's like, I'm out. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scary because you want to trust him to lead, but you feel like what it boils down to is you feel like he's not leading quite the way he needs to lead in that situation. And that's why I think I would, I would say probably you got to find a middle ground where you've got to, again, kind of like I was saying to Matt, you got to trust the process of God said, here's a responsibility. A man is to lead his family. He's to set the tone for discipline, things like that. If he's not doing that, you got to nudge him. I always use the, so it's not, it's not wrong for a wife to push her husband, you know, and I feel like a lot of times we're scared we're going to get into that category of um, an extreme. So as a husband, I don't want to be domineering. So if I'm not careful, I'll go to the other extreme and I won't lead. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to be a domineering husband and dad. Well, I, but I have to lead. It's my job. Well, the, the flip side I think a lot of times a, a wife is who's, who's seeking the Lord and trying to be gospel centered and do things according to scripture will feel like, Oh, I don't, I, I don't, I want to be submissive. I don't want to, I'm a strong personality and I got to be careful. I don't push my personality to the front, you know? Um, and so if you're not careful, then we convince ourselves that there's, there's no middle ground and there actually is. And so what that looks like to me is would be like, uh, Almost there's times where I feel like little has to shove me along because I'm not leading well. And there's other times where I got to drag her along because she's not paying attention to take that lead, you know. Uh, and, but, but if we're doing that in those times, then what it usually looks like is more like we're walking side by side, you know. But there's times where somebody's lagging. If I'm lagging, she gets behind and starts pushing. If she's lagging, I reach back and start pulling. And so it's, it's this process where you got to find that middle ground. And so what I would say, you ever hear that saying, choose your battles? Okay, so that's where you'll say to your husband, hey, on this one, you got to deal with this. This is serious. We have to deal with this. And then other ones where you're going to feel like, I really want to deal with that. But you're going to say, you know what? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. i got to trust the process. It's not the way I wish this would be done, but I'm going to be okay with it. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's as a pastor, it's kind of the same thing. Like I have to make sure when I go, even like teaching the Bible at the kitchen table, I'm I'm like, okay, I'll make sure I'm not using my preacher voice here, you know? So yeah, finding that, making sure it stays organic and real and personal in the home. But yeah, I think, man, I always tell this one story where Kilby, my oldest daughter, she was like 11 and we, we were in Mumbai, India. And she had gone with me because she so wants to be a missionary to India. And that's all she ever wanted to do. And so she went with me. And it was me and Little and her. And I remember I'm laying in my, we're laying in my, I'm laying in my bed. Little and I are laying in bed. And, and I was jet lagged. We're day three, two or three. And I'm jet lagged. It's three in the morning. And I'm just wide awake, you know. And Kilby's in the next room and sleeping on a cot. And at about five, the first Muslim call to prayer went off. And I'm laying there and I hear, and when you've, if you've ever been in a Muslim society and heard that, it is eerie. It's demonic, you know, and, and I'm hearing it, whoa, la, 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 la. like, and, and, I'm, and I know outside the city right now, there's 15 million people bowing, facing Mecca, praying to a demon. And I'm, and here we are. And so I've got this really sober reality. So I get up and I start praying. And then I start to hear there's a Hindu temple right outside of the flat we're staying in. And I hear... 
this bell will ring. So at the Hindu temple, when they come in, they get their, you see, a lot of times you'll see uh, Hindus will have the red dot or a yellow dot on their head. That's a blessing. So sometimes they'll have it tattooed on there. But oftentimes when you get in a, in a South Asian culture, they'll have it for the day. It's the daily blessing. They'll go by the Hindu temple. They'll get their blessing. The priest will put it on their head and then they'll go to work. So you'll see city dignitaries with, in a suit with the mark on their head, you know. And they go in there, they get the blessing, they pray to the Hindu gods or whatever. Then they ring this bell because they're waking those gods. And which is crazy in light of that we serve a God who never slumbers or sleeps, you know. So I've gone from the Muslim call to prayer and I'm, and I'm pacing the floor and my girls are sleeping. And then I'm hearing this bell ring and I thought, you know what? Um, and we were in Mumbai, India for Kilby. I didn't want to go on that trip. And she's like, I want to go. I want to go over there. I want to see the work. So I literally had done this trip to take her. And I remember thinking, um, this 11-year-old little girl is pushing me in the right direction. And that's a good thing. So if our relationships are healthy, there will be times where I'm leading. There's going to be other times where I'm failing as a dad, but I'm getting the right kind of push, you know. And I think that's really healthy. So, but what you got to figure out is when do you push and when do you not? And that's a spirit-led thing. That's a, we, we, we search the scriptures for knowledge. We ask the Lord for wisdom. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge. And so oftentimes people have knowledge, but it's not with wisdom. And so what we need in those situations is I need the scripture. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the application of that knowledge. I need wisdom as I move forward, you know. And so that's where you're finding that balance of push and pull, if that makes sense. There are only a few people left here. Good thing I'm not insecure. <laughs> it's an hour and 45 minutes. People did really good. Oh, man. All right, we'll call it a, we'll call it a day, and uh, we got a couple hours still to go enjoy the rainy afternoon.